Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, and welcome back to a new episode of the Thought Hermes podcast. This is your host, my name is Rudolf, and this is now episode two of our sixth season. Yes, season six already. I have been very happy with your reactions to the episode that launched this new season two weeks ago with Jonathan Goldman. Thank you so much, everyone who reacted to that. And I am very pleased that we had a very nice success with that comeback that we have with our show, the Thoth Hermes podcast. So today it's episode two and the title of episode two is Occult Photography and my guest in this episode is Daniel Yates. A little bit more about him in just a little moment. Um, I'm trying to keep those intros now a bit shorter than I used to do, but still I want to say thank you to our patrons here who are supporting the show on Patreon. And I would of course like to invite you who are not yet a patron to join them and to be a supporter as by $1 per show upwards, we are already really happy to have you as patrons on this show. So please go to our Patreon page. TH Podcast would be the page's name. Otherwise, you'll find the button that links you directly there on our website, thoughthermes.com. And it's important to know thoughthermes.com. That's T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. Because there you do not only find that famous Patreon button, but of course, also all the information about this show. That means all the episodes that to, you would be able to find there really each and every one that has been done so far and you have also the show notes which are very important and especially today have a look on the show notes of today's show because um, occult photography of course we would like to show you a few photos that Daniel Waits is also talking about in the interview as an occultist so um, have a look on thoshermes.com and while you're there why not send me a message? You have either a voicemail or a link to a contact page where you can send me a nice message or also criticism if you wish. Otherwise, go to Facebook or Twitter and find the latest news on the show and also send me messages from there. I especially want to thank my friend Ursula, who is now, as you know from last time, helping me with editing those social media present, presence, uh, uh, their Twitter, Facebook, and also some other things. And I'm very grateful for her support. It makes my life a lot easier. But there is one more thing I absolutely need to talk about to you today, because it is almost by the day four years ago that this show was launched four years ago on april the 20th 
Today is April 18, so it was April 20, 2017, the first episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast appeared. My guest back then was the great Alan Richardson, and still today many people listen to this very first episode. As you do for all the episodes since then, it's about 80 episodes we have done so far, and uh, I'm really, really happy also how the audience has evolved since then. and the many, many feedbacks and interesting guests I had since then. I mean, I don't want to give names because each and everyone was such an interesting guy, but you go yourself, look on the list of the podcasts on the website, and you'll see really, really many, many highly interesting people and big names of the occult scene have appeared on this show. And I'm really grateful into what this podcast has developed. Also, thanks to you all, my audience, and of course, thanks to all the guests, which I really would like to uh, point out here once. Okay, and I thought, as you know, we always have a little bit of music on this show and we are about to approach the first piece of music. Um, well, no, I'm not going to tell you what is going to be. Many of you will recognize and I'll tell you afterwards what you are going to hear now. So stay tuned, listen to this wonderful music that you're going to hear now and... Just enjoy. When you have faded
think of the day by wonderful Wendy Rule. And yes, well, I think you have recognized it, haven't you? This was our intro music for the first two seasons. And uh, Wendy had really given it to me in order to play it as the intro. And it has accompanied me for the first uh, 20 episodes or so. And it's still such a lovely piece of music, I thought for our anniversary today. I need to play it again in full length this time for us, all the six minutes, because it's really a beautiful piece of music. And of course, the new intro we have since season three by Chris Roberts, who was specially composing this for us, is also a very special moment. And thanks to Chris again, that we are still able to use his music for the intro and outro of this show. So, well, now let's go into the interview with Daniel Yates. And um, I think many of you who follow the occult book market have come across Daniel and his book that was published with Anathema Publishing uh, about a year and a half ago, some time back already. And where he presents a book, yes, of photographs, occult photography. I'm not going to tell you now what occult photography is, because, of course, I asked Daniel what he has to say about that, and he's explaining this much better than I could ever do. Um, so it's going to be a most interesting talk to Daniel. He's a photographer, but also an author, a stone crafter, theologian, because he studied theology. He's going to talk to you a lot about that. He's a practicing witch and devoted family man. And he has really many, many interesting things to say about his art, about how photography can be occult and what is occult for him about his photography. And once again, as I already said in the first intro, please go to the website and see those three photos that we published there. We are talking about those photos also in the interview and you should have a look at them to fully comprehend what Daniel is talking to us about here. Um, and while you're there, why not go also to the link where we link to his website, photophrenic.com, where you have more of that and can find out more about Daniel as well. Okay. So I spoke to Daniel in his home in the north of England, and uh, we had a lovely time talking to each other. I'm sure you're going to find out very, very soon. Um, now also to tell you that I will be coming back in about 35 minutes in the middle of the interview. We'll play another piece of music then, and that will be music that Daniel has chosen for us. But for the time being, without further ado, let's go and meet Daniel Yates. Here comes the interview. It is my pleasure to welcome here on the Thought Hermes podcast, well, somebody who we have planned to have on this podcast for quite some time. And then by the break that I took, it has been postponed and postponed. And I thank you so much, both our audience and you, Daniel Yates, who is here on the show today, for your patience with me and uh, for being with me here tonight. And it's great to have you finally uh, here on this podcast. Daniel, welcome and good evening. 
Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, of course. Um, in fact, what triggered that uh, that interview tonight is a book that uh, our common friend Gabriel McCoffrey sent me over, which is the book Arcanum that Anathema Publishing published. Well, it's now well over a year ago, I think, uh, and um, which, in fact, uh, was quite a unique experience for me when I saw it. And uh, I was very grateful to Gabriel that he sent it over to me um, because and we're going to speak about that a little bit later in this show. Um, it, you, it, we are speaking about art forms and the occult often on this show here, but um, here we have something that I have not so far experienced in the way you do it, and we'll speak about your type of photography in a moment. But let me first start with a statement um, that I read about you, which is a statement by Peter Hamilton Giles from uh, author and also I think the publisher at Adramentus Press, who also works with you. And he said something about you, which leaves a number of questions for me, which I'd love you to answer for us today. Let me cite him. He says, Daniel Yates has cut a niche for himself through his use of the eye and the camera. An occultist and existentialist with the aesthetic appeal of one who sees where others fail places Yeats at the very pinnacle of expressive modern esoteric art forms. He surmounts the vagaries of mundanity by applying an eviscerating sight and thereby is able to read through the eye of the lens the augury of the fallen and the hidden track beneath. Well, there, it, that is quite something. And um, let's maybe start with the first question that arose in me and that will bring us hopefully to your biography, which interests everybody here. He calls you an occultist and existentialist. And those are two things that do not are not usually mentioned together. Um, a, would you agree to that? And B, can you explain a bit on that? Oh, wow. Um, an existentialist. Um, I think it would really depend on what's what exactly he was meaning when he said that. Yes, um, <laughs> I thought you'd we tell um, me. <laughs> we can, we can often have conversations, me and him, um, mm -hmm. that can get a little mind bending at times. Um, mm -hmm. And I think perhaps he's he's gathered from that. Um, from he's kind of come up with that idea of me being an existentialist mm -hmm. from that. Um, because I don't know, I I tend to take things that uh, ideas that many occultists have, and the first thing I like to do is completely tear them apart. Um, because I'm inherently a theologian at heart, and mm -hmm. um, I have to ask not just why but how. Um, the how is really important to me. Um, I think in religious studies, people ask why. And theologians ask, well, how? Mm -hmm. um, and so whenever we've had various conversations about things related to, say, sabbatic witchcraft and things like that, um, I'm constantly asking how, whereas people are used to, people often have their answers to the why, maybe. Why this? Why that? And I'm like, yeah, but how? How does that work? Um, so 
I think perhaps that's where he's coming from when when he says that. Um, it wouldn't surprise me, but I'm going to have to ask him. I've not actually asked him. <laughs> <Well>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you mentioned a few things here about, well, you, you did theological studies. That's what I also read in your biography. So can you maybe give us a little bit of your background and go as far back as you wish? Because I, uh, those, those ideas and those wishes to study that often start at a very early stage in, in life. So where does it all come from with you? Hmm. Um, well, I, I, I guess I was raised um, in a religious background, but not in a typical sense. I wouldn't say that my mother was pagan, but she was certainly open-minded enough that it wouldn't have took much for her to be one. And she certainly created an environment in me of questioning everything um it was it was strongly encouraged on all fronts mm -hmm. so you know i could read a religious text and i'd be challenged by my mother as to the hows and the whys behind it but then i should also put a copy of new scientist in front of me and challenge the hows and the whys um because she was an electronics engineer um okay. So she kind of needed to understand the how and the why things worked. And she applied that to everything. And that kind of really stuck with me. So that when I decided to uh, to pursue further education um, and I was looking um, at where I kind of wanted to go, I couldn't really think career-wise where I wanted to go. So I just went with, well, what is it that interests me the most? And I kind of went down a uh, on an undergraduate level of kind of both sociology and theology and very quickly realized, yes, theology is, is really my kind of jam. Um, but I was frustrated at its complete focus on Christianity, Islam, Judaism. You know, it's really hard for, for, for them to break out of that mold. Yeah. Um, but in the final year of my undergrad, they said, right, basically you can write a thesis on whatever you want. Well, that was it. Um, it was a complete theological study of the wheel of the year, as it is commonly seen within okay. modern pagan practices. And they had no idea which teacher to give this to, to try and come up with a mark. Uh, the best they could come up with was one of the Islamic studies teachers who also had an interest in pre-Islamic practices, dabbling a little bit into various magical practices. So he kind of took it on and he was like, I think it's good. Um, <laughs> and I, I got a pretty good mark for it, but yeah. Um, may, may I ask which university that was? Second, sorry? May I ask which university you were at? Uh, university of Liverpool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's pulling things apart, understanding the, the underlying root behind it has always been a thing. Much to the um, annoyance, actually, of um, many, many years ago when I was initiated into a Wiccan coven, and the very first thing I did was asking the how and the why. Uh, why why is this done this way? Why is that invocation done that way? And so on and so forth. And a couple of people were fascinated by the challenging questions. It really made them think. Some people were just annoyed at, why are you asking? It's like, why has nobody asked before? That's that's where I'm coming from. Um so sometimes my uh, my approach is welcomed in the room. Sometimes people are like, oh no, he's asking those kind of questions, and it's like, okay, I've had to learn learn when it's appropriate. I think, yeah. But um, that um, I mean, you you explained that though, because your mother taught you basically the, the the asking the how and the why. But um, yeah, 
how and why did you get into occultism yourself? Because as by what you just said, I, I gather that it, it has been a, a search also in that direction at some point, right? Uh, I was very, it was, so um, I was born and bred in Lancashire um, and there is quite a strong folkloric element of things here for, for some people, especially the older generations. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just something that was in our house because we lived with my grandparents for a long time. And it was just normal everyday life involved these things. Um, for one how example. Would that, how would that manifest? Yes, give us an example. Yeah, one example would be, so like if, we, if the entire family had been out for the day, so mm -hmm. the house was empty. When we got back, the very first thing that would happen is my grandpa would go through the front door and he would shout into the house, right, we're home. And we'd all have to wait for just, just a brief moment. And then sometimes you'd be hearing like upstairs, and then it's like, right, we can go in now. Um, mm -hmm. Because there was this firm belief in boggarts that were tied to families. These are kind mm -hmm. of localized spirits that were tied to families. Right. And it, it just become this thing that was always done that you would tell them you're home because they didn't want to be seen. And things like that were normalized for me as a child. Right. The other was non-othered. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when that becomes normal for you, um, it drives you. I think because I think people such as ourselves have this driving force to understand more. Mm -hmm. So when things like that become normalized, you start to dig even further. You're looking behind even that veil that is already behind a veil that was in front of you to, to understand further and further and further. And again, that's probably a reason why theology was such a an appeal is that it's constantly digging further and further behind what something means. Um, the, these kind of events were very typical all the way up to um, probably me leaving the family home. Um, and at that point it was firmly entrenched. And at that point, um, when I went into a house share with some friends, they very much kind of pointed out how the th some of the things that I was doing, like acknowledging these things was not normal to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they found it very strange, but they were reasonably accommodating to it. Like things like I'd open the door and I'd say, just wait a minute. And then mm -hmm. I'd like make a bang or a sound, something like that. And that was that, I think from there on in, um, it was a, a simple trajectory. Uh, it was very much triggered as well. I remember um, my uh, going through the bookshelf at my mum's house, mm -hmm. and there was a book on uh, Celtic and Scandinavian religions by J.A. McCulloch, I believe it was called, and uh, from like the 1920s. Now, I've since learnt that quite a, quite a number of things in that book are very inaccurate, but nevertheless, it was, I think, a very influential book on me at the time because I thought, this all seems to make sense. Things like um, spirits of place, genus loci, certain things at certain times of year. That there were all things I'd already been feeling, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I'm seeing it in written down, and it was like, oh, okay, right. This is this is cool. Um, at that point, I was going past the point where my mum could really 
help me with that. You know, this was already like, you know, oh, you're interested in that. And then mm-hmm. I think for about three or four years solid, every birthday present, every Christmas present was some form of mythology book. Okay. Um, I've even got a book on the shelf over there. It's Francis King's Witchcraft and Demonology book. And inside the cover, it's like happy 13th birthday from my grandparents, 13. And it's here's the Witchcraft and Demonology book. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's like, yeah, this, this is, this is, um, this is our Daniel. This is what he's doing. Rado, leave him to it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So so I have a colleague, a a podcaster colleague who always asks people, have you been a weird child to start with? Um, You have, you, I would turn it the other way around. You are not a weird child because for you, that was all normal. And as you just Mm. said, when you grow old, when you grew older, then you realized that it was not for everyone like that. So how did that, what caused that as a reaction in you? Well, realizing that, that, that the things were different the for a lot thing. of yeah. other people. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was. I think I, I, I think I would say I was quite fortunate in that a lot of the friends I was surrounded by at the time, even if they weren't interested in it, were certainly open-minded enough that they were like, mm. "Yeah, whatever. That's that's your thing." Um, because I was already, as well, I used to do a lot of things like role-playing Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. Yeah. So I had these kind of really quirky friends with interesting musical tastes and interesting <laughs> taste in everything so yeah so they were more and a few of them did so. kind of explore it a little bit themselves you know they were like oh tell us a little bit more about this and i think a few of them are kind of pagan minded not practitioners but pagan minded you know mm-hmm. they realize that there's there's a life in things and whatnot mm-hmm. um yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um when at or at what age did you start to formalize it? I mean, like you just Ooh. said, you entered a coven or, or things like that. So when when did it become a a practice for you? I was fourteen years old, and it was July, um, and me and two friends went camping, which was our version of camping, which didn't involve a tent. It was just it's a nice day, so we're going to get a fire going in the middle of the woods, and we'll sit there all night, uh, and we talk about everything um and i was just getting super excited about all the various different kind of pagan type things that i'd recently been learning and they were kind of giggling like you know wow you're really into this i'm like oh you've got no idea and i'm like ranting and ranting and ranting and i just kind of stood up in typical teenage style and shouted up into the trees i'm a pagan and that was it i think a kind of funny moment at the time but i've looked back on that and thinking that was my own little self-initiation right there. I was okay. making a declaration of intent, like it's yeah. f- from this moment onwards. I mean, there was a fun, I, I joined a, a Wiccan coven. Um, mm. Wow. How long ago was that? Was 18 years ago now, 18, mm. 19 years ago. Mm. Um, and I was with that for the duration until um, ill health took the um, the high priestess that was that was running that and mm. um so things kind of started to wind down um and from then on i've worked a uh, a solitary path which has mm. been really really good uh in the last uh, couple of years i've been working with a with two other people um with some kind of sabbatic material mm. uh so that's been, yeah, that's been interesting. Yeah. That's a question that arises often in, in those interviews here and in different practices, not just Wiccan. Um, uh, but 
do you think it is necessary to be part of a coven to be able to do solitary practice afterwards or can you do solitary practice right on from from the beginning if you go the right way you can absolutely do everything by yourself you, yeah. you do not need to be initiated at all there are definitely benefits to it definitely benefits to it especially if you're if you're new um i have said though um and I, I, I stand by this a lot, is that I consider myself very fortunate. Um, I'm, I'm what you call a zenial, like Gen X slash millennial. I was that generation that was that saw the end of the analog age and the beginning of the digital mm -hmm. age. And I, I, f I feel really kind of fortunate that um, I started my journey on the occult at a time when the internet wasn't there. Because I yeah. think the internet is an absolute minefield of 90% utter rubbish with 10% gems. Mm. But unless you're discerning enough, I think perhaps, you know, practiced enough to, to be able to spot those gems, it's really, really difficult to wade through all this noise that is, that is on there. And, and I often recommend to people the best book to learn from is outside and not mm. on a screen, get away from that screen. Mm. Um, and again, like picking pink, picking things apart, I often tell people just because it's published in a book doesn't mean it's peer reviewed and worth reading. Yes. You still, you know, there, there are still so many people making that mistake of thinking it's in print, it must be good. And it's like, mm. no, 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 no. I mean, every single person I know who's kind of a seasoned practitioner at this point, can run off that shelf of books they've got, which they're like, yeah, that's the shit that I really regret buying. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we all have them. Sure. Uh, whereas <laughs> now I'm seeing a trend of, no, people have bought maybe three books and they're treating them like gospel. Uh, and it's a little concerning on where that's going to lead things. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, you can do things by yourself. Uh just don't let your ego get in the way too much yeah and check and check yourself constantly constantly, <laughs> constantly. Just, yeah and just to check yourself not what check yourself only, yeah you know, yeah what check yourself do it makes with you yeah yeah what it does with you exactly yeah yeah absolutely if you're doing something because something says that's how you do it and mm. you're not getting the results that you think you should be getting mm. then question it modify it change it it's not set in stone and if it's still not working throw it away do something else like keep going but don't don't become dogmatic about what you're practicing if it's if it's not working for you at all um you know because i'm i i do i get really concerned what i see online what people the, you know the things that people are talking about and i'm thinking have you even actually practiced any of this stuff at all um it's it's bizarre but Yep, it's the world we live in now, so we have to navigate it as best we can. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's go to the second question that arose for me from Peter Hamilton's uh, um, quote that I had here. Um, he says, um, you are working, uh, you are at the very pinnacle, he says, of expressive modern esoteric art forms. So here again my question what are the modern esoteric art forms for yourself and how do you place yourself within that uh, field and what's what's your what's your take on it 
I was, I, I will admit, I was a bit surprised when he said that um, and humbled that he thought that. Um, I'm, I think that all I've been trying to do is offer a, a different take on what the expression of the occult beyond just word can be. Um, there's, there's a lot of different ways. There, there's lots of amazing artists out there, absolutely unbelievable artists out there at the moment. And um, I found myself increasingly frustrated that I do not have the ability to put um, ink to paper and the painting or drawing is, is very, very limited for me. Um, I am practicing, I'm trying to get better at it, but being able to express certain ideas and thoughts that I've been having on the page has been really, really frustrating that I can't do it exactly how I want it. And then uh, about 11 years ago now, 12 years ago, I bought a camera. I thought I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a go at photography. I quite like that. And that changed everything. Um, I realized that one of the things that I, I see in a lot of occult art is an expression of it, which is showing you what it could be in a sense of here's how something could be perceived beyond what the eye would perhaps normally see. And that's not necessarily something that you can do with the camera without manipulating the image significantly, which is, this is fine. And I have, um, you know, I have lots of artwork. My, my house is an absolute gallery. There is artwork everywhere from photographers, from artists, all, all doing their thing. And I love every single one of them. Um, but what I wanted to do was show how the occult is there in something that isn't manipulated in, in something that isn't um, modified to show something how it could be, but how it is and how it's hidden right in plain sight, right in front of you. You know, it's, it's, it's here, not there. Um, I kind of, the, the kind of the antithesis of the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is actually greener right under your feet. Um, and so I started to experiment with something. Um, of taking various different photographs um, because with my book, I didn't originally plan on it being a book. It was kind of an experiment at first of what people's reactions were to certain images dependent upon the how stereotypical the image was. So for example, I could share, I could do what I essentially would say is codify various occult ideas into an image, but the image would be essentially completely mundane. There was nothing obviously occult about the image whatsoever. Um, and the reaction would be yeah, reasonable photograph. You know, no one would want to engage with it. Or, even though I I would tell them this is an occult photograph, they would be, yeah, anyway, moving on. Um, but then I could take another um, photograph that was like of a particular tarot card at a nice angle with with interesting lighting and a bit of incense smoke around and people are like oh wow that's great it's wonderful and it's like yeah it's kind of it's you could still say it's an occult photograph in a sense but quite often it's what I would have called photography of the occult it's it, it was different in that one thing is showing you what the occult can be 
and the other one is showing you what the occult is in the literal meaning of the word occult, hidden. It's hidden right there in front of you. Um, so, so not one single one of the photographs in my book is manipulated. They've been edited in that they've been cleaned up, you know, um, you know, if there was a bit of noise in the image, that's been cleaned up. Contrast has been balanced, white's been balanced, all that kind of thing. But they've not been into Photoshop. They've not been manipulated in any way. Um, and quite a few people didn't actually believe me about that, especially with photographs like the uh, the chapter on emanations, which are kind of my take on the tree of life. A lot of people were like, how did you do that in Photoshop? And I'm like, I didn't use Photoshop. <laughs> that's in camera. And they're like, what? Um, so yeah, that's in camera. That's um, and that was the point. It's this. This is a reality. This isn't an idea of what something can be. This is what something actually is. Um, there is the existentialist. You see. Oh well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how it really is. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, but um, I think you have to explain it further. We'll we'll have a few. Uh, three or four photos of you on the website in the show notes and I really ask people to go there because those who haven't seen your book yet um, I hope there will be a, a few more after this show but um, maybe it's hard to understand what you mean but so may, maybe can you say a bit more about what is occult for you in a photography what is it what what, okay. what makes yeah. a difference I'll tell you what, have you got the book there with you? Yes. Uh, okay, let me find a picture for you. Um, this is probably one of the easiest pictures in the book to understand from mm -hmm. where I'm coming from. So if you turn to page 72. Yeah. The, the triune aspects. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's just a little plant. Yeah. Yep, that's it. Except it's one stem growing out of the ground. And on the left is a stem that's about to go into flower. Mm. In the middle is a stem that's about to go into fruit. And on the right is right. a stem that's dying, all right. on the same on the same stem yeah. plant. Mm. So what you have is a very stereotypical depiction of mid and mother crone all on one plant, yes. because you've got in flower, in fruit, and dying. Mm. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so th this is probably the easiest one in the book. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so I always use this one as an example for people. Yeah, of course, I, I'll post it on the web uh, on my web page so people go there and have a look so that you understand what we mean here. Um, and I just uh, find it super yeah. interesting because it's it's not just like three plants demonstrating this. This was three occurrences on the same stem, which yes, which sure. what really grabbed sure. me about this particular little shoot. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, there we go. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, but that sounds to me, and it's obvious, uh, but it, it that sounds to me very much influenced by your personal practice of, of the pagan of the pagan occultist side, yep. uh, because of course there you have that eye open and are not waiting for other higher experiences, but you actually see it in your daily life, right? Yeah, is that your approach also to photography then? It is. Um, but when you there talk is, about emanations, it is different, isn't it? That 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 was a tricky one because the the kind of the tree of life is not something I work with at all. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But that's why I challenged myself to do that because I thought, okay, maybe the fact that I don't work with this and I have an extremely limited understanding of it will help. Mm -hmm. um, 
it will help me kind of be a little bit more open about how I'm approaching it instead of having this endless list of preconceived ideas. Because whenever I have seen people talk about this, there are associations and colors and shapes and forms and everything. I know that the the kind of the knowledge behind each of these spheres is huge. Um, and like a person could spend forever talking about just one of them. Mm. Um, but I didn't have that knowledge. So I thought, what am I bringing to it? What, what do I want to bring to them? So I brought shape and I brought color and I brought form. Um, so I would read a little bit about, but not much, just, just enough to get a sense of shape, color and form in relation to that particular sphere. And then I will take these photographs. Um, now, the process in which I, I took these photographs was interesting in that they're taken inside glass, um, but it's where you can't actually see inside the center of the glass. So the, the photograph, the thing that you're seeing in the image, most of those photographs are about five millimeters across in total. They're super, super tiny in the very center of these glass spheres. Mm -hmm. And you can't actually see the center of the glass sphere. So the only way I could take the picture was to get these two lights and shine them in from either side. And then because your camera doesn't want to focus inside there, I would have to manually focus it and keep taking it till I got the point where the light, these tiny beams were illuminating mm -hmm. the inside of these glass spheres. And I, this was just an experiment. I, I weren't expecting the first one. And so the first one I did was the one that I used for um, Chessed. And I, 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 mm -hmm. I pressed the shutter. Now, this was a long exposure because these were tiny beams of light. And then when the picture appeared on the back of the camera, my jaw hit the floor. I was like, what is that? And so I was experimenting further. And then before you knew it, that's like, it was a eureka moment. I was like, I cracked it. I've cracked yeah. it. Look at these. And I, was, I, and I actually had to take a photograph of the whole setup that I was using and using my phone, take a picture of the back of the camera with the image in camera at the back because I knew that no one was going to believe these weren't photoshopped. I'm like, this yeah. is in camera. This is not yeah, yeah, because yeah. They, they just don't look like photographs. They look like yeah, absolutely. digital yeah. paintings, you know, it's like, there you are. There you are. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe this is now a, a crazy thought that I have, but you, you said when you did, your theology studies then and you you were preparing for your degree or for uh, then they didn't find the person to to work with you it was hard to find the person to work with you because suddenly they were confronted with something that they hadn't really considered yet let's put it that way mm. in in occult arts in general photography is very very rare still today yeah. wouldn't you yeah, yeah right how well there again you are coming up with something you you decide to do arts but it's something that is not around and how how were the reactions how did you within the occult community how did you what did you encounter as reactions there um very mixed um mm -hmm. I think there were some people that realized what was going on, that the image was there to be explored. Um, although I never really understood that some people were getting that until the book was released. And then I'd receive a couple of emails or messages saying like, you know, asking me questions. And I was like, oh, this is great. Because one thing as well is putting things online. 
a lot of the time you really you don't get feedback so yeah. you don't know if people like it or not other than people clicking like on something and that doesn't mean anything mm. i mean some people just autopilot oh just okay, yeah. click like yeah. on it yeah move on um yeah. so i think some people were getting it and some people were not um and i really i love talking about my photographs to people mm -hmm. Um, I can see that. Because I find that every single time I have a conversation with someone about my photographs, they have a bit of a, oh, now I get it. And then they run away and they go and pick the book up again and they look at it and then they come back with a million questions. And it's like, ah, now I know what I'm looking for. Now I've kind of felt a little frustrated about that in that, is that my failure to really outline that in the book maybe to have given a precursor that this is this is what you should be doing but then i thought to myself and i had a conversation with the wife about this she went absolutely not she said because remember what your mum said um and my mum saw um the stuff that i was working on um just before she died and mm -hmm. she again she was interested in these things but was was definitely not a practitioner or anything like that mm -hmm. um but she loved trying to figure it out. And this is someone who knew nothing about this stuff, but I, I would tell her the name of a photograph and then a week later, she'd be like, does this mean this and this mean that? So she had this kind of natural inclination to explore it. And quite often she was, she was, she was doing really well. Sometimes she was miles off, but mm -hmm. other times she, she, was, she was getting what was going on in the photograph. Um, and that, that, that made me think, no, I don't, I don't think I have. I think if, if someone has that seeking mind they will look at it and want to understand this has been this is there for a reason what reason what am i missing is there something i'm missing and yes that they they always find ah i'm seeing i'm seeing what's going on in this photograph now um and i i've, I've said to everybody if there's a photograph you want to talk about that you've got no idea about I, I will talk about it. I will talk your face off about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm quite happy to uh, to waffle on. Like, yeah. No problem. Yeah. yeah. We, should, we should do a video instruction of this one day. In Daniel, because, <laughs> because, of course, that makes things a bit easier. But um, no, but that, that's fascinating. And isn't, isn't being, well, being an occultist, that always sounds so grand, but working with the occult, let's put it that way. Uh, I prefer that expression. I don't know about you, but isn't that always the one who is seeking for something more? And that's why you trigger those people with your, with your art form, with, you, with the way you do it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the one thing, regardless of the path that we're walking, that I think we all share in common, is that, that driving fundamental thing inside of us that's like i want to understand more that there is something more and i want to understand it and we all come at it from different angles some of us from pagan angles from ceremonial angles from from whichever it doesn't matter we're all, we're all looking for the same things we just decide to use a different toolkit that's all yeah so let's now take a little break in this wonderful interview and listen to a piece of music. You have maybe also heard already in the interview that uh, Daniel is not just a photographer. He is a full artist and also music is part of what he is interested in. He is also learning an instrument, which is very rare Slovakian instrument. And um, he's interested in also those 
ancient types of uh, instruments, musical instruments. And he has suggested to me that we should play a piece of music performed by a group, uh, a duo actually, called Daimonia Nymphae. Daimonia Nymphae, there are two people, Evis Dergiu and Spiros Glazavakis, and by their names you can also discover already that those two guys are Greek. And uh, that couple is the first group of artists worldwide to compose and perform improvisations with reproductions of ancient Greek instruments, which are actually manufactured by a guy called Nikolaos Baras. They have been performing all over Europe and have also been composing music for short films and documentaries. And uh, I think what they do is really highly interesting. We are going to hear two uh, pieces performed by them today. The first is Daniel's personal choice as a piece that he suggested to me. And the piece is called Psyche's Chorus. And it is a kind of ghostly waltz, as the duo call it themselves. So please do enjoy that. But before we go there, remember, I have decided for this episode, uh, for those episodes in season six, to try out to only do one little talk in between in the middle of our interview. So immediately after the piece of music, it's not me who will come back, but it's be Daniel and me who will come back for the second part of the interview. And after the interview, at the end of that lengthy interview, there will be a second piece by Daimonia Nymphe. And this second piece is called Nature's Metamorphosis. So, but for the time being, it's Psyche's Chorus, a ghostly waltz.
Now what interests me also is, um, well, again, this brings us back to Gabriel McCoffrey and of course we knowing him and he is one of those people who is certainly looking for new things and going beyond what has been done so far already. But how did it happen that that um, you got discovered, so to speak? How how did those photographs come into together into a book? Because you yourself said that wasn't your intention in the beginning. How how did it happen? And um, yeah, well, tell us about it. I'm going to name drop someone. I mean, he's completely not expecting it. And if and when he listens to this, he's going to be like, oh, my word. <laughs> um, but it's the artist Johnny Decker, Johnny Decker Miller. Okay. Um, I've, I've got a number of his artworks up, up on the walls. I absolutely love his stuff. And um, we, we've been back and forward in via email for many, many years now. Um, we're both parents, so we like to talk about like how, how on earth do you fit all this into parenting life and whatnot. Yeah. And um, he, uh, I was posting some of my photographs on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I put up, I think I put a comment on underneath one of them saying something to the tune of, I'm not really sure everybody's understanding the premise behind these last couple of photos that I've put up. Would anybody be interested in a breakdown of what it means um, or something like that? And uh, quite a, well, I, that's when I got an overwhelming response that I'd never had before. Of like, and I was really surprised. Like, oh wow, people were people were like thirsting. They were like, yes, yes, yes. I want to understand these. I want to know more. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and then Johnny turned around and he said, "You need to write a book." And I went, "Oh, what? Really? You'd read a book about this?" And he was like, "Absolutely, one hundred percent." And I turned around to my wife and said do you think I should do a book about this issue? I was wondering when you were going to get around to it. And I thought, oh, well, everyone seems to have had this idea. Thanks for letting me know. Um, so that was that. That was, I started kind of formulating this idea in my head of how would I do it? Um, and from there, it just kind of, it, it kind of really snowballed really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. I realized I had a lot of the preliminaries already done on what I needed to do. I'd already been writing various different musings. That's that's the, the bulk of the there's a there's a small amount of text in there. Yeah. Um, and I'd just been like putting those little notes down as I'd been taking all these various different photographs. And I thought, actually, this is um this is quite far along already for, for what it is. Um the only thing that they needed doing is I wanted to properly codify the images with their names because I was kind of loose on some of the names of what I was giving them because I needed them to be both descriptive of the image itself but also really the underlying principle that's in the image um, mm -hmm. this is kind of like the first signpost into the image so I kind of sorted that out and then I really set myself up by deciding to do something that I thought was clever at the time it turned out to be extremely difficult, but I managed to pull it off. But I think I was a wreck by the time I'd done it, which was <laughs> I wanted to put a little description underneath each image. So if you look in the book, underneath each yeah. image is is a line. But in fact, this line has two meanings. The, the, these, these descriptions are actually the arcanum of the book itself. Right. Because together, they are actually one big poem mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when read together. Um, 
so I wanted them to have meaning to the image itself, but also to actually be something completely different in a kind of grand poem of the book. You mean those uh, smaller print lines, right? The, the second yeah. lines on each, each image? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the ones that have the small, the small writing underneath, that's actually a, a line of a poem, and when put together, right. that's the grand poem yeah. of the book. Yeah, exactly. Um, what I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. That that was yeah. I, I thought, oh, this is a good idea, and then about ten minutes later, when I actually started to put this yeah. idea yeah. together, I was like, oh my word! And then about three <laughs> weeks later, I was like, banging my head against the desk, going, what have I done? <laughs> you madman! But you're stuck to it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. But, but, Which, uh, you, for someone who is very stereotypically Gemini like me, that took some doing because I'm usually <laughs> I've got seven things on the go at once and never finish anything. So getting that like done was like wow, it was a miracle. Yeah, I know. I know the feeling. I'm a Gemini, ascendant Gemini. So, so and you know when you get older, then it starts working harder on you. But um, you took kind of, um, which I'm happy about, uh, part of my question, and maybe we can go a bit more in depth in that because you write texts that go with the images. So we just talked about that already. Yeah. Um, but how do we, in general, your text? So how does the word, so speech, the words, the sound of the word, and the image relate to each other. How do they, what's their, how do they work together? What's important for you when they work together? Is it two separate things or is it really interwoven? What's, what is it for you? Um, the, the, the things that I've written in the book, um, I think I think the first thing I'd probably say is I, I saw a comment about the writing in the book very early on. Someone it was a criticism, which is fine, mm-hmm. that said they were disappointed that there was very little writing in the book, and it kind of made me giggle because I thought mm-hmm. if you read the writing, you'd understand why there's very little writing in the book. The writing is about why there's so little writing in the book, um, in that uh, words are difficult, um, and this is why I love the image because words are really loaded. If I say the word witch, it can mean something to me, it can mean something to you and something to someone else, and we're all not on the same page about what that means. And that's that's with niche words. Even with general words, they have an even broader meaning. So it becomes very, very difficult for us to to convey occult knowledge in the written word. I think this is why certain grimoires are written the way that they are, is to, and some people see them as convoluted or intentionally obfuscating something just for the sake of it. And it's like, no, what it's trying to do is is kind of jumble your understanding of what that words might be. This is why I love poetry as well, because that kind of does it as well. It delineates your your expect your, your kind of interpretation of the word it makes you stop it makes mm. you pause um and it, it's difficult so i like to use the written word but only as a kind of peripheral subsidy to the image itself i don't because even even with the descriptions even with the titles of the images sorry i had to be really really careful to not color the interpretation of the image too much. It'd be so easy to just say, this image is this. Um, And rather bizarrely, I have seen some artists give images descriptions 
um, they have in their mind an idea of what that image is, and then they get frustrated and annoyed when some member of the public comes along and says, well, to me, this image means this. And they go, no, it's this. It doesn't mean that. And it's like, e no. Um, <laughs> once you put that image out there, you lose any say over what that means to someone. Definitely. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. it yeah. doesn't matter what you've written. If you've written. If you've written something and you've tried to pigeonhole it even further, then you're just setting yourself up to get even more frustrated. Um, so just guide people in its general direction. But beyond that, the image is what it is to them. And I absolutely love when people get in touch with me about an image that they've looked at and they tell me what it what they've seen in it. And it's completely different than what I got so from really that image. So you really love that. You, you feel inspired I absolutely it, love it because then it's like, now that image means even more to me because mm-hmm. I can see multiple things in it now, even things beyond... What I've seen, I mean, I've said this about authors for a very long time, in that some people will debate about what an author meant in a book. And it's like, it doesn't matter what the author meant. You can take what they meant, but what you got from it is what that's all there is. Um, I have a lot of discussions with people over Andrew Chumbley's Azoisha. And that's a really funny one because there's so many ways in which you can look at that book. And I always tell people, like, they think, is this right? And is that right? And is this right? I said, there is no right. Like, especially with a book like that, it's it's what you're taking from it and what you're putting into it. That's that's all that matters. And that's what matters with the image. Um, with the image, um, I think it naturally just encourages it, especially if you've not given it some length, the description of what it should be. It's like, just here's a doorway. Step on in and see what happens. Right, right. I'm coming personally from exactly the other side because I'm more from I'm from the performing arts world. So we do exactly the opposite. We use the image as an addition to the text mostly, right? And the, yep. I'm, I'm of course I'm being a bit blunt now, but and the, the the visual arts are doing the opposite. They use the image. Uh, they they take the text as a as an an extension of the image, right? And um, yep. but in the end, we have the same. We come to the same conclusion that you just made. Now, my question is, um, is art and the occult, aren't they basically extreme related? Even if you're not an occultist doing arts, isn't exactly what you just said, giving, putting something out there because you have an opinion on something and then leave it to the world to make more of it. Is that not magic in itself? Absolutely. Um, I don't think it's any accident that it's often referred to as the art with an E on the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is the magical art. Um, and I think uh, there is more Im- imagery within the occult. Um, y- you're never going to find a time when that wasn't present. Mm. Even if you go back to cavemen drawing on the side yeah. of a wall uh, essentially sympathetic exactly. essentially sympathetic magic for the hunt yeah, it's someday. it's it's yeah it is intrinsic to man's understanding of the occult mm-hmm. um they can't be separated um yes. and it can't be codified really either i don't think people mm-hmm. have tried but that's what i love about it it's so ephemeral it constantly shifts to what it needs to be um whereas words can change their meanings over time. So you can read a a poem that was written 500 years ago and you could look at a proper direct translation of it now, but still you don't understand its meaning because those words don't mean anything to you now compared to what they meant then. Mm -hmm. Whereas 
you can look at an image from 500 years ago and you can you can go into the image and you might still not get the meaning that was back then but certainly the meaning isn't forced on you it's something you will have had to explore and garner for yourself um that's the beauty of it it's mm-hmm. that kind of to me it's the ultimate poetry without words mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but but words are interesting because they're just sigils at the end of the day that we've given kind of more banal meanings to but <laughs> yeah but, and and their sound of course which yeah oh, absolutely yeah i mean even if they are just words but they are sound as, as themselves as well so so that yeah. also plays yeah. plays a role especially magic of course yes um talking about words you you also wrote and uh, of course i'm not talking about your theological studies of course you did there but you also are writing texts. I don't know if is that is that more recent or have you done that all the time <laughs> while you were doing also photography? Did you do it aside? Or um, can you tell us more about this? And uh, I'm talking about the pillars text that you published also, but other texts that I saw online. I didn't all read them, but I saw that they were published in in, in occult um, well collections or or, or magazines. Um, so what about that? What's that form of expression for you? Um, I like, I do like writing. Um, I, but I struggle with it quite a lot. I'm very scatterbrained. I'm very, um, I digress massively with, with my thought processes. So kind of getting it all down on paper is difficult. It's, it's very, um, I'm not the kind of person who could chuck out three, four books a year, like some people seem to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm, I released a, a little, chap book of poetry three poems right that's the most recent thing i did um before that i'd written um a small article for the the pillars journal mm. um that was talking about um bringing my different health afflictions mm. into magical practice right. um because it was for the seeds of aries journal which was kind of looking at pain and struggle and conflict and and whatnot and um me and Gabriel were talking uh, um, about health things. And he said, have you ever considered writing about that and how that factors into your practice? And I said, like, I can can certainly think about it. And uh, next thing you know, the the article was written. And uh, I've been really, I think, very overwhelmed, actually, at the response that that article got. I know that uh, Foolish Fish on his YouTube channel spoke about it and lots of people have messaged me privately saying like, I've just read your article. And I was like, I can, I can really relate to that. And I was like, wow, Uh, (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am, I am currently writing a book, um, a more ritual based book. Um, That's just taking some serious time to complete at the moment. what That's, do you mean by ritual based? Uh, if you can say already, but um, well, it, it's it's a book dealing with um, elf fame. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the other world, uh, mm-hmm. and primarily the processes of building those bridges from here to there. Um, it's a challenging book because a lot of people have a lot of ideas about what elf fame is, and almost all those ideas come from traditional folkloric writings. Mm-hmm. And what my book is challenging is a lot of these ideas that a lot of this folklore was written by people who were seeing things they don't necessarily understand. These were not 
this, these folklores were not written by people that were practitioners. They were written by people who were experiencing something. Mm. And so they, it's not, it's not that they were lying or anything like that, but they don't necessarily understand what they're seeing or experiencing. Um, and I, I come very much from a, I always come from the angle of, I take on board what's been written before, but I don't take it as gospel. I'd rather go and find out for myself. So if someone says a particular thing, oh, this is associated with that and associated with this, the theologian in me comes right out and says, <laughs> how? So then I go and ask, oh, this deity is involved with this. Is it? Well, I'll find out when I ask because I'll go and ask. I won't just take some books, tables, mm -hmm. word for it. You know, um, like if someone puts a copy of 777 in front of me and I just want to go, nope, and throw that right out the window. Not, not because, not in a disrespectful way in that like, oh, it's rubbish. No, but it's yeah. like, I understand this premise, but that's not where I'm going to come from. I, mm -hmm. I, I need to come to my own understanding of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then through my work with this whole process of building these bridges, my understanding with L fame has developed to the point where I felt I'm going to write about this actually. Um, this whole process of othering yourself to here as a means of pushing yourself there. Um, it's this kind of flux transition thing going on. Um, mm but writing it in a way that is not my typically scatterbrained self is just slow. It's okay. happening, but it's slow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have to pick you up on that thing that you said about ritual. What, what is ritual for you? What does it mean to you? Ooh, that's a good question. What is ritual? Um, I think it. I think it could take a couple of forms, really. Um, I, me coming from a very pagan background, I, I've I very habitually mark the occasion of the very sabbats through the year. Mm. Um, the format in which that has taken has changed significantly over the years, as my understanding has changed. Um, I have a lot of pet peeves about people's understanding of the wheel of the year. That was mm. something that I obsessed over for about fifteen years. Okay. Um, I think people, the, 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 there is so much interesting science behind the wheel of the year that can inform the theology of the wheel of the year that I think it's just been completely overlooked. And there's so much historical rubbish that's in there that needs taken out as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, you know, there are rituals that I, I would do that are very celebratory in that respect. Um, rituals that involve actual action, involve an intention of getting some kind of results or mm. of some kind what are they um wow it's really hard to think about this actually because i i'm i work with the dragon book of essex that's okay. that's one of the main things that i work with and it's an extremely intense thing to work with you're working with it every single day um so ritual has become habitual to me um which is kind of the purpose in that you kind of, it's a bit like when you use mantic formulas and you're going over and over and over and over and over and over again. So eventually right. all of that noise is just flattened out. So then the real work can start. It's a, it's a bit like that. Things are, 
it becomes uh, again use, normalized. I, I you know, <laughs> uh, I sometimes use the, the strange image, maybe, but I sometimes think um, ritual is like tra pilot training. So you repeat those exercises, the emergency exercises, um, for yourself when all is good. In a way that when the emergency happens, then you know exactly how you do it. I mean, yeah, you're not even having to think about it. Yeah, exactly. Is yeah. that also for you part of ritual? Um, yes. Mm. Yes. Um, I don't think it should be with every ritual. I think there are certain kinds of rituals that a person would do that the mindfulness on each and every aspect of it needs to be present. Mm. Um, but then for others, um, I think, yes, that it, this kind of parrot fashion going through it to the point where because I, I guess it's identifying is the is the magic in the ritual or is the magic in the thing that's happening above the ritual once the ritual is well what I kind of describe as flattening yourself out so you've kind of succumbed the conscious mind to all this noise and you've put in all that there so that then you can go off mm. and do the work itself um, or is the work more focused to a point in in the moment of what you're doing um mm. so the way you would approach that ritual will depend on which one of those directions it's needing to go in and of course a solitary ritual might be also psychologically very different from the group ritual right oh very much so yeah. very much so yeah 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 definitely um well, we are already approaching a bit to the end of our talk, but I have one question for you. Maybe it's a bit far-fetched, and if so, just tell me and, and, and we drop it. But um, you, uh, I want to come back to that article uh, that you wrote in, uh, about your health issues, right? And yep. um, how they have influenced your magical life. And we are living in a time, and so much has been already said and written and uh, talked about this, but in a time where... Um, uh, a health issue with completely different from what you were describing there um, has changed the life of people, right? The habits of yeah. people, the day-to-day -day life. Um, and do you think that that issue that we all experience more or less in a direct way, but we all experience it somehow, um, changes the way you do magic, changes the way people in general do magic or ritual or the occult. Um, does it change the way we see our occult world? Ooh. Does it change things? I mean, for yourself, maybe well, that's the easier part. <laughs> well, for myself thinking about it for, for myself and a lot of the people that I associate with, it's been kind of, it's been kind of interesting how many, including myself have said that what the pandemic has done is almost socially justify our normal way of life as it already is. <laughs> it's true, yeah. And so many of my friends have said this, like, wow, it's like, I can just do what I would normally do, but now that's the norm and everyone's cool with it. And like, rather than like someone phoning saying, right, I'm coming around and I'm like, oh, I really don't want to. It's like they'll Zoom, you know, they'll Zoom meeting me or something or Skype and it's like, yeah, and then at any point I can just say, right, I'm going by. And right. um, it's so... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a very very socially isolated person anyway. Mm. Um, I'm quite I'm quite asocial like that. Um, 
Does it? It ha- I mean, it has affected people's magical practices. That's for sure. I mean, for example, um, just the uh, was it? No, not last night. The night I'm, I'm very discombobulated. Uh, not last <laughs> night. The night before, I was actually out with two people doing a ritual. Yeah. Um, and and we'd only just really been allowed to do it Here in the UK. We've only just been allowed to gather in groups of six outdoors. Yeah. yeah well, um, lucky you. We are not allowed at all at the moment. <laughs> oh yeah, it's pretty bad over there at yeah, the minute, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, so that was the first time we've been able to do that for a while. Um, now, we we have had meetings before when we shouldn't have. <clears throat> but, um, you know, it's, it's not like anybody can, can stumble across us because yeah. where we do yeah, our sure. meetings are actually a quarter of a mile underground in a cave. So, yeah, yeah, yay, yeah, yeah. Uh, that we have private access to, which is which really cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I imagine a lot of coven groups that were doing outside meetings, they've had everything like really thrown up in the air. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been, I mean, I, I host um, a local moot uh, in, for, for, for my kind of town and whatnot. And that's, that's been on hold now for like 18 months. And yeah. a lot of people said like, shall we do it by, by a Zoom meeting? I was like, oh no, 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 no. no, no, no. no. I, I can't handle 10 people in a, in a video call. Um, yeah. Well, even like, if you put can, your hand up, can you yeah. speak? Like, yeah, no. Yeah, no, 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 no. But um, I, I mean, not only practically, I mean also um, the, the energy, you know, let's call it that way, um, is as we live in a world that is full of fear, full of anxiety uh, at the moment, and and uh, mm. so many habits in day to day life have changed, does that does the, do we occultists also change with that, or do we have a, a a vibe that helps us through that? How would you see that? I think it's impossible for us not to be affected by it um when you see such a change on such a massive scale on so many different levels um from from the feeling of the people around you to the fact that there were no planes in the sky i pointed that out to myself we went outside i said look up because that's probably the only time in your life you're ever going to see that um and it, it makes you question how much do these things impact the spiritual environment around us. Um, I would say, yeah, a lot, a hell of a lot. Have I felt different in my workings? Very much so. But interestingly, and I don't, I'm not, I don't claim to understand this in any kind of way. Um, it's affected my work in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, the silence almost, um, has for me been been a huge factor. I'm very kind of I'm very one of these people who's very aware of like background traffic noise all the time of the motorway mm-hmm. half a mile away and things like that, and it's just been so significantly quieter. And um, I think that is affecting affecting a lot of us. Um, some people that I think your average your average person on the street, it's affecting them in a seriously negative way because they're just not they're not used to being disconnected from society in any kind of way whereas i think occultists have made a point of we're connected to society but we take these moments where we intentionally disconnect from society and so we're getting more of that um Mm. for better or worse so there's a plus side and a downside to it yeah yeah Yeah, very much so you mean yeah 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 well it was certainly part of why i 
took that spiritual break myself here. I think I, I was not directly, but indirectly influenced as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, Daniel, um, to to kind of round that up, we mentioned a project that you had already uh, about that that book on, on rituals that you mentioned. But what are your future projects, your upcoming projects that we should have our eyes, eyes open for? Um, I know there is a book in the making uh, also um, where you you give the, the, the photos for at Atramentos Press, if I'm not wrong. But, well, tell, ah, yeah, tell us yeah. about it. Tell us about what's coming um, So there's a book um, being done by myself and... Peter Hamilton Giles on mm. ritual space and the crooked path between. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll be doing the writing for it. I'm doing the photography for it. Um, most of the photography has actually been done already, um, but it's going to be some years before that book is done. Um, okay. Peter's currently writing the the Black Dragon series of books, mm. and he wants to finish that series before. And the very next thing then will be this book because he feels that series needs to be established for this book to make more okay. sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be probably, I don't know, three to four years, I think before that book oh, right. mm-hmm. starts to surface, that'll be a while. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the, the book I'm writing about elf fame. There's, there's actually another small book that I'm writing um, called the epistle of the void, um, which is to do with, um, a magical process involving vessels similar to what's done in mm. sabbatic witchcraft but not just specifically for that i'm trying to kind of keep it a little bit more generalized for a kind of wider audience i guess but right. um looking at the use of vessels um that's a small work and that is probably going to be the next thing that comes out because mm-hmm. i kind of got my momentum with that at the moment and it's much it's going to be much shorter so because it's an epistle it's not like a full sure. book or anything um in more recent times, I've actually, uh, so I've been stone carving for quite a long time. Oh, really? And yeah. And uh, again, it's a bit like the photography. A couple of friends said, you should see if people want to buy that. Um, so I like, okay. So I kind of started posting pictures and like my hands were being ripped off on a daily basis. I thought, wow, people are, people are quite interested in that. So I've been showcasing a lot of my stone carving, um, I'm still taking photographs. Um, there's there's a, a, a series of photographs I've kind of been trying to put together looking at um, showcasing the, the 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 kind of the Newman of everyday objects and how they can manifest in a way that makes them not everyday objects mm-hmm. um, playing with kind of shadows and stuff like that. Um, what comes from that, we'll see. Okay. Uh, there's a collaboration that's ongoing between myself and the artist uh, Shandy Buscatia. I think oh, I might have butchered that surname. Um, I'm terrible with names. Uh, <laughs> where I take various photographs and then I send them to him and we kind of discuss what we want to do with this image and then he paints onto the photograph. Right. Um, so that's been interesting. Um, yeah, sure. There's about, so far I think we've got seven or eight images that we're working on. Uh, one of them's completed, um, but yeah, so that's going to be really interesting mm-hmm. uh, to see where that where that goes. Um, yeah, 
I think that's pretty much everything I'm working well, on at the moment. N- number of nice, well, quite a number of nice projects. That's, that's well, cool. like I say, I'm very typically Gemini, so it's it's, yeah, it's getting them get, finished. Exactly. That's the key. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope something co- will be finished soon that we can hold it in hands and uh, look at it and read it. Um, Daniel, it was a pleasure to to talk to you. Thank you so much. And likewise. Um, I hope uh, I hope we'll be in touch again and and uh, for the time being. Thank you for being with us here today and um, good luck with Thanks all your projects me. and with, with life in general. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye now.
Nature's Metamorphosis by Daimonia Nymphae. That was the second piece of music after the interview that we heard um, by them, by this group from Greece, as I said, they're the first group worldwide to perform on the rebuilt ancient Greek instruments. And the other piece that you were listening to before the second part of the interview was called Psyche's Chorus. And if you want to know more about this group, go also to our show notes, because we have a link to their webpage there, of course, as well. Right. Well, um, thank you, Daniel, so much for your time and for being with us here today. We passed a great moment with you, and I think we learned a lot also from you. It was very, very interesting to talk to you. I hope you all enjoyed it just as much as I did. And well, this brings us already to the end of this show. Well, time's flying, isn't it? Right. So, well, what is expecting you in the near future on this show? We have episode three coming up, episode three in two weeks. I promised you that after episode three, we would normally return to weekly rhythm and that's still the way it's going to happen. Um, so, but this time you still have to wait for two weeks for episode three. But the wait is well worth it because my guest on episode three will be Jake Stratton Kent. And I'm sure many, many of you know about Jake and know Jake maybe in person even. Um, Jake Stratton Kent has been a Goetic magician since 1972, but his scholarly approach is backed with a lot of personal relationship. His practical words integrates the magical papyri, etelo French grimoires, etc., etc. He is a highly, highly knowledgeable guy, and he has been called the most notorious necromancer in England. And he describes himself as a very late, late pagan. So we have a lot to talk about. He has published a lot of books. And I'm really, really looking forward to presenting you Jake Stratton Kent on this show. And that will happen on May the 2nd in two weeks from today. Look forward to that. Until then, I hope you will be all doing well. I hope that this difficult time that we're all going through is not hitting any one of you too much. Um, and we are getting a bit closer to the end of that terrible period of the pandemic, I hope. Right. But for today, I thank you for listening. Looking forward to have you back very soon. If you haven't listened to all the previous episodes, why not go? They are around everywhere, but especially on the website thoughtthermies.com. And for the time being, I only can tell you, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.